to another episode of solace in the city today i am so excited but also a little nervous (laughs) to be sharing my conversation with my beautiful wonderful incredible friend hillary um the reason i say i'm a little nervous is because i definitely uh shed a lot of vulnerability and open up about problems that i still feel a little bit embarrassed or shameful about but at the same time that this is like talking about this stuff is the whole purpose of my podcast and if I don't practice what I preach then kind of going against that so I hope you all tune in and I have no doubt that you'll take a lot from this um specifically that you know, the whole, a lot of therapists, including Hillary and, you know, including myself, have dealt with our own fair share of mental health difficulties in our past. And it's, it's either propelled us to, you know, go into the field or made us better therapists and more relatable therapists along the way. And, um, yeah, I, I think that's something really important to recognize, especially, you know, if you're at all hesitant to go into therapy to begin with because you're worried of judgment of being um you know psychoanalyzed etc it just something to keep in mind is that you know the person sitting across the couch you know looking at you in the zoom is has or is still dealing with a lot of difficulties of their own and so it's that relatability component that really makes therapy so wonderful. Um, yeah, but before I, you know, jump into the episode, I do want to quickly mention that we do talk about a lot of um, topics that could be triggering, such as going um, in depth on eating disorders and anxiety and depression. So, you know, if that's at all triggering, just keep that in mind and Either while either while you're listening or you know, before pressing play, but I I do want to quickly say that, but I also don't want to take up too much time, and I want to share this amazing episode, um, and also just again emphasize how much I love Hillary and Hillary, if you're listening, I love you, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm excited for you guys to listen, and please let me know your thoughts, slide into my DMs, and um, yeah, and did you take anything away from this? go to therapy, <laughs> reach out to Hillary. She's an amazing private practice and is taking new clients. So yeah, enjoy the episode. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Solace in the City. Today I am so excited to be here with my amazing friend, Hillary Weinstein, who is a psychotherapist with a private practice called HLW Therapy. Yay, Hi guys. Here. Thanks for having me, Zoe. So I'm so excited to ask you just a ton of questions about your practice, um, like everything you do, but for um, some background, if you don't mind just starting off by telling me a little bit bit about yourself. Where are you from? How old are you? Where'd you grow up? What's your story? Sure. Um, Kind of weird telling you this because you know these details. (laughs) I'm 31. I'm originally from Long Island. Um, and I just said that super Long Island. Like, did you hear that? Well, I just yeah. totally said Long Island. So I'm from the Island. Um, I graduated social work school in 2000. God, I don't know time anymore, but I think it was 2012 or 13, something like that. So I've been practicing since, um, I worked at a uh, Montefiore outpatient psych hospital, Bellevue child and adolescent psych ER for a bit, which was pretty intense. Um, And then a group practice. And then I decided to go out on my own and start my own practice in 2018. Wow. So you've been doing this for a bit and and add on the, the years in um, social work school I guess, did you study psychology as an undergrad? 
I did. Yeah. How did you become interested in, in the subject? Honestly, my first, I took a psychology class junior year of high school. And for me, it was like going to church. It was like, kind of like my fake, like first therapy session. Like it was, I've never been to therapy before. And I just, the teacher was really engaging and awesome and relatable. And I think she was actually, I think she had a practice. Um, and it was the first time that I was learning stuff. And I felt like I was learning these concepts that really resonated with me. And for the first time, didn't feel like understood, like, okay, I don't feel okay. And that doesn't make me weird or defective. And I can learn about this and there's treatment for that because growing up, I, I really didn't talk about it, about my struggles. And I know that a lot of people don't for different reasons. Um, there was like stuff in my family where I just didn't want to contribute anymore. I felt like if I talked about what I had started struggling with, then I would be a burden or I would be adding to the tension that was already there. And so I just swallowed it and I kept it to myself. So it wasn't until this psychology class that I was like, oh, maybe there's something behind talking about it. Like, I'm kind of interested in this. And I kind of just took education upon myself as my first, like, way of gearing up towards asking for help. So did that class, like, inspire you not just to study psychology, but to become a therapist? Or was it more just like spiked your interest in the field? Good question. Um, originally, it was pretty like selfishly motivated. Like I was, I think I honestly thought if I like learned about psychology, I could just fix myself. Um, but eventually that changed um, because a family member of mine, their therapist did incredible, incredible work. And I started seeing that difference. Um, so I went to him and I was like, cause this was around like senior year of high school and you have to start kind of figuring your shit out. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you're really, you've been really helpful and you've been instrumental in my family. And like, how did you get here? And like, do you like it? And just started asking him questions. And honestly, he was my first kind of mentor hats off to him. I really appreciate because otherwise I don't know, I would have had no idea like between all the different degrees or how I wanted to like navigate college. And I know it's weird to even like most people don't really know what they want to study going into like their freshman year of college. But between that class and this guy, I just kind of was like, yep, that's what I'm doing. That's so awesome. I like wish it's so weird that they, I mean, maybe it's just because like I went to a very small school, but we didn't have any classes in psychology. We just had two counselors who were visited by practically everyone. In high school? Um, yeah. I guess there is like AP psych now that I think about it. But I feel like mostly you hear of those like learning terms and things like that. Not really. Yeah, that's what that's what mine was. It was an AP psych and it was. Um, we didn't have any psych classes like earlier than that. Um, earlier than junior year which honestly there should be um, mm -hmm. like psych light for the developing mind. Um, but yeah, we had like a couple, they, they were like guidance, not even guidance counselors. I don't really know what their job description was, but it definitely wasn't someone you go to and talk about feelings with. Yeah. But you know, it, uh, that's so cool that you knew kind of right off the bat, like what you wanted or you had your end goal and like you kind of knew how to get there. Um, but it is so funny, like, I know that the majority of the reason I want to become a therapist is for, like, quote-unquote selfish reasons, whether it be to, like, know how to raise a family more effectively or know how to react with my family members more effectively and know how to, like, fix myself more effectively. And I think that's, like, a common theme that's not really no or that people don't really realize 
I don't know, maybe I certainly didn't realize it until I like read Lori Gottlieb's book and talked to you. And I was like, holy shit, maybe like every therapist has like a history. <laughs> with, like, that like a little it. bit of a egocentric motive. Um, I know that one of my, and I, I think I told you this, I know that one of my teachers and I went to um, the Institute for Contemporary Psychotherapy after grad school to the Center for Studies of Anorexic and, Anorexia and Bulimia, excuse me. Um, and the teachers there were all practicing. They all had practices centered in eating disorder recovery and um, or rehabs or what have you. They're really impressive. And in, there were like round table, 10 people discussions. And in one of them, this woman who I look up to a lot, um, she had someone had asked the question, um, like opening it, opening it up, like, am I the only one who kind of like wanted to fix myself? And like, that's how I got interested. And she's like, if you meet a therapist who says that there weren't selfish motivations starting their studies, they are lying. That's <laughs> so not true. That's so interesting. And I mean, I certainly really having, have like had my own mental health struggles as well as like friends and family. Um, so I guess <laughs> my next question as I've kind of prefaced already, but um, so prior to pursuing your career in mental health services, did you yourself ever struggle? And if so, like when and in what ways? Yeah, I struggled in secret probably from the age of 13 or 14 until I guess like 17 when I finally asked for help. I struggled with depression, but I didn't feel comfortable telling anyone about it. I felt like I would cause problems or, I don't know, looking back on that now, it's so not the case, but in like a teenager's mind, that's so often the case. Um, so yeah, I, I kept it to myself. I thought I could just fix it all in one high school psych class, realized that wasn't working. And through, no pun intended, swallowing it all, I developed an eating disorder. Uh, the feelings that I was pushing down, they had to come out somehow. I developed a really vicious eating disorder. I struggled with anorexia, exercise bulimia, and binging and purging. Uh, so pretty much the whole shabam. Um, I would restrict and exercise, and then it would turn into late night binging because my body was starving. I'd feel ashamed the next morning and then I'd beat myself up again and then I'd start the restriction obsessive cycle all over. Um, I'd be so hungry and I remember like sneaking into the cabinet. I'd be elbow deep in the pantry or the fridge in whatever the hell I could get my hands on and I'd feel so ashamed. It took up all the space in my head. I was consumed with what I was eating, when I was eating, tracking, how much I thought I was quote unquote burning off the shame of a binge, how I tried to get rid of the binge, all, all that. I wasn't even present at all. And that's the goal of it really, of an eating disorder. An eating disorder isn't just a defense mechanism because a person wants to control. It usually starts out that way on the surface, but it's really to preoccupy your thoughts or dim your ability to think about your bad thoughts that you can't access the feelings that are so painful. It's like a drug state really. I don't view it as much different than popping a pill or drinking alcohol to get to that numb state. When you're so hungry, you're just not thinking. I remember feeling so dumb that I honestly felt like I was going get, to get hit by a car walking the street sometimes because I was just so unaware. That's why eating disorders are so insidious. It's hard to notice how addictive it's becoming and how dependent on it you're becoming while it's happening. And then it becomes this runaway train. I became a complete shell of myself. I was a person I didn't recognize or like. I well, it was so annoying. I, <laughs> I remember so vividly senior year of college, sitting at lunch at, at school. We had this cafeteria called the Terrace, or that's what we called it. Um, it was with my, which sounds a lot nicer than it was. It was just, on the second floor. Um, but I was with my friends and it was kind of like one of those Charlie Brown moments when like the voices all distorted and distant. 
like they were talking about the night before or the night come on, coming up or whatever they were talking about. But I was so anxious about the fucking contents of my salad and or like what I was going to put in my salad at the salad bar that I wasn't remotely paying attention. And I remember my friend called me out on it. She was like, Hill. And then she was really compassionate and gentle and it kind of caught me by surprise, but she expressed to me that she noticed and they all did how I wasn't really there. And it became this conversation like in the middle of lunch while I was worrying about my salad that I wasn't expecting. And they were just like, we don't really recognize you. This isn't the Hillary we love. Like what's going on? Um, it was really tough. I was mortified. I genuinely thought I was keeping it a secret, which in hindsight is laughable. Like, oh my God, it's sad that I thought that. Um, after that, I, I forced myself to be more present and how grateful for my friends I was, but it was a band-aid. Like, I was okay for a, okay in quotes I really wasn't but like I was a little more present and able to have fun with my friends for the remainder of senior year um but I still like I had my secret virtuals and it led to fights with my friends and when they felt frustrated that they couldn't help me which they couldn't um I lost some of those friendships and when I look back on it it was like the worst breakup or heartache compared to any boyfriend I felt they were my family but my eating disorder won and that's really sad and it happens all the time yeah it's interesting like I remember looking back on like my I guess like important developmental years like high school and the beginning of college like I remember being a freshman and that's when I lived in Greece and I remember like all of my friends were quote-unquote depressed and it was like still when I was seeing life through rose-covered glasses and I just like didn't understand I thought they were all just being very dramatic and throwing that word around because I do think in some ways the word gets thrown around but then when I did start having my own struggles which is more really in college I remember being like, oh, like this is what my friend was explaining. And I like wrote, I remember like, Facebook messaging her because uh, that's how I keep in touch with my friends in Greece. Like this long ass, like just apology and like, whoa, I, I get what you went through and I just, I'm so sorry. Um, but I think in many ways, like a lot of, people I think like a lot of millennials probably can relate to that of like depression just having this like weird connotation of like the emo kid at around like when we were in high school because like that doesn't happen anymore like I think people are a little bit more open which is great but I think it's backfired in all of our faces like you know and caused our demographic to be pretty fucked up now yeah it is fucked up I've had depression and I've had anxiety and they both blow I do notice, not just with myself, but my clients, that anxiety seems to be more comfortable for people to admit. I don't want to compare struggles or minimize anyone's experience, but anxiety because of societal expectations is sometimes associated with drive or motivation or success. It's like this little badge of honor that shows you work hard and you have so much going on that you're managing. I think that makes talking about anxiety for a lot of people who struggle with it difficult because anxiety can be really debilitating and they the anxiety that they're facing can be very different from this more colloquial version of just being stressed because you're accomplishing so much um anxiety can be really dark and scary by the same token i think it's hard for people battling depression to express it or ask for help because the stigma is that if you have depression, you're unmotivated or you're lazy and just need to pick yourself up from your bootstraps where in reality it can be hard as fuck just to get out of bed or shower or get through the day. Um, as much as 2020 has been 
such a shit show. There has been more attention on a societal level toward mental health. And I mean, I hope that can be something that we take, that everybody takes with them going forward. Yeah. And they're also, I mean, so comorbid. Like, I honestly can't really differentiate times when I had depression without anxiety or the other way around. And then I think you mentioned the word shame and like, I I think the most, and I don't know if this, there's like stats behind this or whatnot, but isn't true that like eating disorders are one of the most like shame inducing. Yeah. Eating disorders are hugely based and developed out of shame. Yeah. And then there's like so many other additional factors. Like you mentioned, like, you know, you didn't see a significant like weight loss and, my friend who I uh, had on the podcast a while back, Ramsey, when she was talking about her eating disorder, she said like the worst she ever was when was when she looked the quote unquote healthiest. And I think, I mean, there's like that, there's the fact that it's become so normalized in our society that it's almost like, I mean, especially in a like, you know, privileged area or like um New York City where like people don't sleep people aren't eating there's all these different diets that are essentially like eating just like I mean intermittent fasting it's like how is that and all all that shit is disordered yeah and you're seeing things on Instagram where it's like let me just like show you every single ingredient in my like lunch which is like two pieces of carrots and like I think it's it's hard to even like recognize in yourself what's an eating disorder because when you're being thrown detox teas and all this bullshit like you're like oh this is just normal I guess or like this is just eating healthy with like yeah quotes in, in major air quotes I I mean that's the biggest distortion of diet culture in our society honestly is that healthy is just taken on so many different subjective interpretations to fit someone's conscience but like it's not healthy the f factor the intermittent fasting rules about good foods and bad foods and clean eating and all of that bullshit like uh, it's just those are the kind of comments that you throw into a kid who already doesn't feel like they have control or like they can express their emotions. And then whether it's from inside the family or in the classroom or wherever you hear these comments and you realize, like, Oh, well, this is something I can control. This is something that actually looks like and represents control. People will think I have my shit together. People will think I'm in control of my life if I'm ripped, if I'm toned, if I'm super skinny, if I have a thigh gap, if I, whatever, they just think I'm crushing it. Yeah. Which is an awful stigma and can make, like what you said, your friend feel worse. Cause it's like, if you struggle mentally, but it doesn't reflect physically, it's almost like you're failing at having an eating disorder. Yeah. I mean, I remember like, when I was at my worst, my own eating disorder, I remember posting a picture on Instagram and it was my most liked, most commented on picture ever. And like, I look on it back and I'm like, I, I mean, I need to delete that. Like I, I, I look sick. Like, and the number of texts my sister received that day and the number of texts my friends received that day being like, is Zoe okay? Which they told me in hindsight, they were like, dude, like, we were worried about you, but it's just like so fucked up that that's still at the, was at the time, you know, I was being praised for it, like literally praised. So. Yeah. And I had that too. in um, in college when I got really bad is it escalated because I actually did lose weight. Like I gained the freshman 15 and then some, um, and then my old habits of like knowing like, oh, I can just do X, Y, and Z and feel like I'm in control starts to kick in. And then it did take a physical 
um, or you could like visually see it. It's it's crazy, and I I think it's such a common like story that people and like myself included, like I was the first one to admit about any other quote unquote disorder I had, but like it took me pretty much until this time last year to open up about my eating disorder because it's so shame based. It's so like belittling or at least that's how it made me feel. And it made me feel like I finally had succumbed to like the one thing that I knew I was like, (laughs) you know, like very like at risk for given my addictive personality and like my, all of my previous issues I feel like I always kind of knew and like as my friend puts it like an eating disorder is like a loaded gun like it's always in you it just like when is it the trigger gonna pull totally. um, and I was so it was one of those things where I was like shit this is so gonna happen to me I even remember being in like it's so interesting you had that foresight yeah I mean I think it just like I I don't know if it was like the superstition in me or what. I think it was just always being a kind of self-aware person and knowing like when I put my mind to something, like I get it done. So let's hope that those are all good things, both for myself and for others. And I don't know. I just remember like always kind of knowing that it was going to kick in somewhere. Um, And then when you, when it did kick in, I mean, going back to what you said about the picture, did you at the time look at that picture and think you look good? I mean, I know like all the likes and stuff, other people were seemingly thinking that, but. Um, I knew I was in a bad place. I, I even actually reached out to a girl who's like pretty open on her Instagram um, about her eating disorder. And I was like, I need help. Like, how do I get it? I was living in Greece at the time. Um, It was like when I was. So you wanted to change. You wanted to let go of it. Yeah. I knew I needed help. I mean, it sucked because it was like right when I had graduated college and I was like living my quote unquote best life in Greece. But I knew I was not good. So I reached out to her and I was like, what the fuck do I do? But um, and she was like, go to treatment. And I was like, I don't want to do that. Um, But. It, and then I, I knew I was I knew it was bad. And then I, I remember coming back from Greece and like literally not that everyone, all my friends had just moved into the city. I was like, I cannot see anyone because I, I looked horrible. Like I was like sick because you look too thin. Yeah. And I was like. How, like, sad is that, that, you you know, you go from one spectrum, end of the spectrum to the other, like, oh, I can't look at myself because, you know, body dysmorphia, body dysmorphia, and then, like, oh, my God, I look like a 13-year-old boy. Like, right, like, what did I do? But at the same, but at the same time, I mean, you say that's sad, but it's something to really be proud of because, that, and I know that sounds weird, but it is so rare to not see that sickly thing thin state yeah. when you're in that mindset as an, like an accomplishment and you did not you were like I can't see my friends because I look gross whereas when I was in that state I was like I want to show the world how awesome my prepubescent 13 year old body boy <laughs> body looks like yeah I, I think I, I mean I never really had like body dysmorphia it was always a control thing uh, so for that it, like for me that was like oh shit I went out of control. Like I went out of control in the reverse direction. Um, and then it didn't help that I come from like the most like um food loving worse. Oh no, just like the worst town of like awful people. And I remember taking the ferry and my sister and this mom had come up came up to us and was like, Oh look, now Lenny's the bigger one or something. Made this like really strange fucking comment. And I was like what (laughs) like yeah it was awful and I just remember being like oh my god oh my god my my jaw is on the floor I mean it is but it isn't because like 
I hear crazy shit like that all the time, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I just am so lucky that it never came from like my parents, which I know it often does, Um, which kind of like leads me back towards my questions about you as a therapist. Like you mentioned that you do a lot of your practice kind of based on like eating disorder recovery and recovery like around those issues. Would you say that like those are some commonalities among your patients? Yeah, I can't tell you the number of times I've met patients and heard I have no reason to complain. There wasn't anything wrong in my life. I'm not bad enough for therapy or I shouldn't be here. Most of my patients come from loving, supportive families, but that doesn't mean that there weren't dynamics that impacted their self-esteem and their emotional development. So I see a lot of similar family dynamics that are subtle and hard for the patients to lean into because their parents do love them and there are a lot of happy aspects to the relationships um, in their home. So a lot of the work is on understanding and processing where their shame-based beliefs came from without demonizing anybody's parents or families, but rather just getting into the nitty gritty of why they experience certain feelings that cause them to self-harm through an eating disorder. And how, like, if at all, having, you know, I guess this is good to know, like, as, you know, looking towards my future, hopefully, as a psychotherapist, like, how do you leverage or use at all your history with, like, mental health struggles to, you know, help your patients without getting too emotionally invested? Mm Mm-hmm. That's a good question. And you will, in school, learn a lot about um, those self-disclosure boundaries. Um, I use self, so it's another, like, evidence-based treatment modality for eating disorders is that, um, or slash, like, a school of thought is that if the therapist has a history of an eating disorder, then it can be really beneficial to disclose that when appropriate um, in sessions in any way that will help because so, so much of it is isolating and is shameful is any way that it can help normalize these like core beliefs that are so distorted, um, and help the patients see some of the different dynamics in their life and growing up where they learn these beliefs about themselves, but they're, they're just not accurate. And they, those negative beliefs were what fueled the eating disorder. So if you can start with like undoing and unlearning that lifetime of self-concept core beliefs. And if you can share it all, not even just about yourself, but about others that like this is common and this is, and like help educate them. And I guess what I'm trying to say is psychoeducation can be really helpful with a mix of self-disclosure. So educating them on the different components that lead to an eating disorder and highlighting that these components existed in their history. So it's not something that's like weird with them or makes them different or bad or any confirming notions about this negative self-talk. Um, in a moment when a patient is talking about some belief or behavior and you can tell that they're just really, they feel really alone and really different and less than because of it. If you can take your experience to normalize that at all, that can be really powerful just to like hear another human and someone who's, who feels safe to you to say that I know that 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 was the basis for when I was in a treatment center next to all of the therapists had had a history with eating disorders and there was a big component um, on self-disclosure and and group therapy and normalizing it and it was through all of that normalization whether it came through from a therapist or a peer that just help serve as a motivating factor of like, this doesn't have to be my life and I'm not alone for having gone through this. 
that's so interesting. I didn't realize that any of that self-disclosure stuff. Now it makes sense because I do have a therapist who will say things like, I'm about to say something personal or like, and, and I kind of picked up on the fact that like whenever she would say something about her life, she would preface it in that way. So I, I, I was like, this must be some like social work thing. <laughs> like, but that's, I mean, it makes so much sense. It's almost like I'm, I'm almost bummed that in my past I'd never had a therapist like that. Like I think personally, like I get the most out of talk therapy. I en- enjoy is a weird word, but like enjoy it the most. I think it's most effective for me. But when I was like seeing a nutritionist, for exa- an example, I assume that like, you know, registered dietitians, nutritionists, probably also go into that field if they have ever struggled with some they they probably have it somewhere in their history I imagine neither of my friends who are registered dietitians do but I'll make them the exception and not the rule um I think if I had had or if my registered dietitian had opened up about some part of her history like I don't know if it existed I think it would have hit home so much more because it just it gives that like relatability and it's like, listen, if I was able to go through this, like I'm not preaching to you. I'm not like, I don't know. It just like brings you onto their level of like this shit sucks, but like it can get better. And like, I believe you can get through it too. Yeah, totally. And I mean, such a major component, whether it's with a nutritionist or with a therapist of eating disorder recovery is trust. And that's because the origin of, of an eating disorder is because you felt like you couldn't trust, you didn't feel safe expressing your emotions. So you kept them inside and they, and you took it out on yourself. It's, there's so, such a huge component about trust. So when you're trying to recover from it, especially, I mean, your journey was a little different in that, like, it was mainly control-based and you did want to get rid of it. There's so many people who, even if it's voluntary, there's a big part of them that doesn't want to get rid of the eating disorder at all because it does provide a sense of comfort that they feel protects them, even if objectively it is getting in their own way a lot there's a lot of resistance to give it up. So trusting someone who's telling you do this thing that is fucking terrifying for you. If you can add some more context there, that's going to build on that trust. It can be really helpful. Yeah. No, that's amazing. Do you, have you ever felt like when you were speaking with any of your patients, did you ever feel like you were speaking to your younger self? hundred percent. And I mean, there's a word for that. It's countertransference. <laughs> it's, um, transference is when a patient like sees themselves in or sees the therapist as someone in their life and kind of projects that onto them. Um, because therapists are supposed to be like kind of, for lack of a better term, like blank slates. You're not supposed to be friends they're not supposed to know every detail about you it's really only if if it benefits the patient um but the opposite can be true countertransference which is seeing someone else or yourself in um the patient and that's a huge thing with eating disorders because there's so many commonalities and similarities with family dynamics or the um trajectory of the eating disorder, like what we were talking about before with like, you lose weight, you get praise, and then it makes it that much harder to come back from it. Um, so, but I, I harness that to just try to give them what I didn't have mm-hmm. um, or what I would have wanted sooner. Um, I mean, it can, it can definitely be hard to try not to over-identify and bring it home and make sure that the advice you're giving is to that individual, not to your younger self. Yeah. 
Wow. How do you take care of your own mental health? Like, I feel like, and I used to say, I used to like be like, wow, I could never be a therapist because I would absorb all of the emotion and whatnot. But lo and behold, it's the path I'm going down. And I think this podcast has shown me that like I kind of can listen to a lot and process it. But at the same time, I do it, you know, once a week, maybe twice, not every day, multiple times a day. Like, how do you handle all of that pain without letting it overtake you and take care of yourself, too? Yeah, I mean, certain, like, it. it's really important to accept that you're constantly evolving and that your needs and your boundaries are going to constantly involve evolve um and making sure that as they do you're always sticking to them so that you're protected so like for me and most therapists making sure i keep up with my own therapy and um for boundaries keeping the sessions to the sessions, not like answering, creating a dynamic where we're friends and we're texting and I'm always there because then I would never not be working. Yeah. And which is not just a boundary for me, it's a boundary for the client so they can also build on their own strength and empowerment that they can solve their problems themselves and apply what we're talking about in therapy. But all these different boundaries and self-care practices where I can like turn off and focus on what my core values and what makes me happy and what what makes me feel like me and not just feel like I'm giving yeah or or absorbing no I think that's so important it it reminds me of that book the Lori Gottlieb book because it's like literally about her going to therapy and giving therapy as a therapist. Um, I don't know if I, I never remember if you read it, but if not, you should. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I have. And yeah, I was going to say, it reminds me of, um, shoot, what was that show we were just watching? Undoing. (laughs) Yeah, the undoing, but thankfully that's not my current situation. (laughs) Yeah. Thankfully your husband is not a murderer. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Blessed. (laughs) but anyways I always wrap up with a couple of questions unrelated to anything um but the first one being what's one thing in your life that's happened to you that's made you a stronger person today that's a good question um heartbreak being broken up with which at the time I thought was the worst thing in the world but it was the best thing because in hindsight, it's something that I wouldn't have done. I wouldn't have pulled the plug and my life would have taken a very different and unhealthy course if that didn't happen. And the processing of that breakup and why I stayed in it, even though it wasn't healthy, has made me so much stronger. Yeah, definitely. I think it's hard when you look at things that you're like, I didn't take agency over this, but like I couldn't have. And so even though it was out of your hands, it was kind of like, or like, you know, you couldn't be the one to do it. It's like good because I wasn't able to at the time. So um, kind of leads me to my second question, which is, do you think everything happens for a reason? I kind of do. I know that it's cliche and I don't know where that fits in with, me being a therapist um (laughs) if I believe that there's like some uh, others already scripted plan um I I I go back and forth on that but I think I what I more believe is that everything that happens like you just said does make you stronger if you live through it and then you apply that and then that's what shapes your life. I mean, I'm not sure if that's fate or if that's causational, but I think it's for the best. Yeah. It's, it's funny because 
I go back and forth too. Sometimes I'm like, uh, I feel like I usually agree with whatever the person says, whether they're like, yes, definitely. Or no, like, but, but, um, then I think about like the fact that I met you because you needed a dog to walk on a, or a person to watch, you know, gray on a certain day. Yeah. Our relationship makes it tough to not believe in that. Exactly. It's like how, I don't know. I see shit like that and I'm like, okay, something's up there that's like weirdly planning my life and I believe every god is real like (laughs) things like that happen and I'm like I don't know for context listeners I like met Hillary by watching her dog and then continuing to watch her dog and then finding out that she was a therapist and I was interested in psychology and etc etc also Zoe was watching my dog to the extent like how often that you were (laughs) because I was not practicing my own boundaries and I was majorly overexerting myself um, in my work. So I didn't have time to walk my own freaking dog. <laughs> so in, like that shed some light too of, oh, I need to step back. And our, all of our conversations, I would always invite Zoe in. And then we just realized we're very similar. And, and Virgos. Yeah, and Virgos. <laughs> and spoke to Tyler Cameron once. Small plug, if he's listening. <laughs> Hi, Tyler. We prank called you, and by prank, we mean we wished it was real, but you wanted nothing to do with it. So sad. So sad. Um, Do you have a favorite quote or a mantra that you live by? Hmm. Um, I feel like I need something really profound to say right now. Um, Yeah. And I, I mean, it's like a more recent one because it's from Glennon Doyle's book. Um, so it's not something that I've been living by my whole life, but something that I love is in Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, her whole, how everything comes back to this mantra that she um, uses, which is we can do hard things. And it's like how my mom and I send, like sign off our texts to each other now. And it's actually, I don't know if you can see this, it's the background of my, it's my phone case says we can do hard things. Oh my gosh, but I want that too. um but but yeah just like constantly I know it kind of grounds me and reminds me like I've been through shit and I've come out the other side so many times again and again when I thought I wouldn't be able to like I can do hard things this next thing I can do and it's just a matter of doing the next right thing even if it's hard to very literally quote Glennon Doyle that's I love that idea (laughs) Yeah, I would get her whole book tattooed on my body. I'm, I love you, Glennon Doyle. Same. <laughs> um, next question is, what do you love most about yourself? Hmm. Uh, my empathy. I, I can get down on myself about so many things, but... So maybe I should have some more empathy for myself. Um, but my empathy is for others. Um, I can always access, and that helps remind me, even in my low moments, that I'm a caring, kind-hearted person. Yeah. And I feel like there's a Glennon Doyle quote about that, too, where she points to, like, how, like, her empathy, like, has, like... I'm going to butcher the quote, so I don't want to even attempt Should that. we just, like... Do a read out loud. So <laughs> <laughs> really like one, oh my gosh. Um, but there's something about that. But like, it's hard sometimes because being an empathetic person, you're obviously more, you know, likely, yeah, more likely to be like affected by an, like, a narcissist or like a lot of things. But at the same time, if you can then harness that and like use it to help people and give back, it's like the strongest thing like strongest quality in the world yeah and and while we're just quoting our queens also Brene Brown uh, like when she talked I mean both her and Glennon talk so much about the relationship between um, empathy and courage or vulnerability and courage and strength and if it wasn't for my empathy that made me feel so much I wouldn't for better or worse, like have been in certain relationships or friendships or whatever it is to then realize that that there's a direct connection between 
empathy and strength and the more vulnerable and empathetic you can be even in its hardest moments the stronger that you can be as counterintuitive as as that seems definitely and then last question which is the name of the podcast is how do you find solace in the city you and gray is that an appropriate (laughs) answer i knew gray was gonna be in there cuddling my dog gray who is sleeping right now and some for some reason not bothering us whenever he (laughs) hears zoe's voice he jumps up and down um gray cuddling gray and texting you about the bachelor and fucked up psychological shows (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh yeah and your and your psych shows and now housewives yeah really really yeah now housewives really provides me solace is striking a good balance between fucked up shows and train crash reality shows and my dog and friends (laughs) that that provides me solace like therapists they're just like us (laughs) (laughs) yeah well hillary thank you so much for letting me record with you i've been wanting to have you as a guest for so long and i'm just so grateful for your friendship and your guidance and your mentorship and just like having you new in my life again it makes me think that there's like something up there that's making things somewhat come together in my like chaotic life um where can everyone follow you uh learn more about your practice like possibly try to get you as therapist (laughs) etc yeah hold on crying um (laughs) because same um but outside of our love fest for each other. Um, I can be found at, my Instagram is at HLW therapy. My website is hlwtherapy.com. Basically just HLW therapy, just throw that around because I'm really not creative and don't have any um, variation there. So yeah, HLW therapy, which is Hillary Leanne Weinstein, my name. So really dug deep on that one. Amazing. Well, thanks again, and bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks so much, Zoe.